0: Okay, welcome back everyone to Build Different. I'm your host, Joella. And unfortunately, our lovely po- co host, Benita, is not joining us today because she is um, going through technical stuff and whatever. But she'll catch up on the next episode, and the show must go on, as one would say. But today, we have a very special guest, our first guest. And I'm super excited and Oh, I'm so honored to have her. Um, We have lovely Natasha Mayimba, right? Am I correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. Thank you so much. <laughs> Natasha is such an inspirational young person. Like the stuff she has done, I it's from like 2018 onwards. I was, I was to be honest, I was stalking you a little bit. I know that is a <laughs> bit weird, but I had to because the amount of... The amount of things you have accomplished at such a young age is phenomenal and inspirational mm-hmm. for me as a Black young woman and for everyone and anyone who's listening. So we're going to delve in into a couple of those stories. And I hope you all find it very interesting because I found everything I read on you very, very intriguing. So welcome, Natasha. Thank you very much. Thank you
1: for having me. I just want to say hi to everyone as well who's listening. And, you know, thank you for taking the time to listen to my story and the things that I want to share. Uh, Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's I'm very honored uh, to be asked to come on. So I'm excited to,
0: to see what we're going to talk about today uh, let's just delve go straight into it so the first area I would love um, for us to talk about is you coming to Ireland and your experiences in direct provision would you like to enlighten the, the listeners to your incredible incredible story
1: yes yeah, so uh, I came to Ireland in 2011 um, as a, a migrant with my mother and my brother from Zimbabwe and we left Zimbabwe due to a lot of kind of political things that were happening. Yeah. Um, if anyone's kind of informed, you'd know that, you know, Zimbabwe is quite politically uh, corrupt. Um, and, you know, my mother kind of had her, her, I guess, you know, her feet in a lot of uh, in a lot of political stuff. She uh, was a part of an organization that was um, trying to um you know, get women into politics Mm. and try to empower women into uh, roles outside of the household. That wasn't looked at very kindly um, during Mm. her day, Um, as well as a lot of other kind of things she did, which messed with the political sphere, I guess. Um, And she just got to the point where she believed that it was better and safer for her and her family to leave Zimbabwe. Um, and at the time, you know, she didn't know she didn't know where she was going to go or what she wanted to do. But she wanted to make sure that wherever she was going to go, she was going to give her children the best opportunity in life. Nice. Um, and so we 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 traveled to Ireland and um, we became uh, migrants here, refugees, and stayed in the direct provision system for four and a half years, from 2011 to 2015. Um, I, I came, I, when I came here, I was nine years old and I left the system. I was 13, about to turn 14. And, you know, being in the direct provision system, my mother always says it's, you know, the first few months that you're in it, you're just thankful. You're thankful that you've left a country. You're thankful that you've left whatever circumstances and situations that made you need to flee your country. Um, But after a while, you start to realize that there's a lot of things happening that um, are detrimental to your mental health, Mm. to your children's health, um, and to your lifestyle in general. And, you know, we always held, we were always very appreciative of everything that Ireland has given us and the fact that we were able to escape from, from the life that we lived in Zimbabwe, but we also were able to acknowledge that there were long-term effects that the system um, and, and how it was poorly managed was going yeah. to have on us um, for for future, you know, for for our future generations. For me, for for um, all the children that grew up during that time. And even though I was only nine years old, I saw the amount of stress the system put on my mother. Mm. there was a lot of fear and anxiety surrounding the decision-making of whether you um, got the right to stay in Ireland or not. Um, You know, people were staying in the system for 10 years without hearing anything as to whether they could stay in the country legally or not. Um, And then there were people who had stayed for 10 years and all of a sudden were getting deportation notices and being told they needed to go back to their country that they hadn't been to in 10 years. You know, they had had children who had never seen Mm -hmm. the country that they were in. Uh, And so we just thought that there were a lot of faults. There were a lot of um, issues with the system and with the way that it was being run. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, We also started to realize that, you know, the direct provision system, it's a business.
0: It is. Um, You know, that is the most baffling part about it. To Mm -hmm. me personally, when I read about everything else would you like to go into that because i think it's an area not a lot of people are really aware of yeah so um i guess you can say
1: the the logistics of the system are kind of put in place by the irish government you know coming into the into the country and uh having to apply um apply to become uh, a resident in the country and go before the courts and, I guess, plead your case as to why mm. you deserve to get a certain status and a right to stay in Ireland. Uh, but they outsource all of the kind of um, the accommodation and, and that stuff um, to companies in Ireland. And basically, these companies are able to open up direct provision centres, whether that's in hotels, hostels, or, um, in my case, um, a... Um, a, a caravan um, site um, And They basically are paid by the Irish government To run the day-to-day I guess necessities Of yeah. the migrants that are coming into the country um, And the unfortunate part of that is that The people who were running the the accommodation centres They don't care about um, Human rights They don't care about um, you know how long you're going to be in the system mm-hmm. they care about being able to make money off of you um you know being able to get paid by the government and making sure that uh what they're being paid is not more than they're spending on you um and in it's fact all about profit exactly and yeah. and the less that they spend on you the bigger their profit margin you know the bigger the bigger uh, amount of money that they're making and so they, there's an incentive on their part to make sure that you get the least necessary for you to survive, right? Mm. Uh, So a lot of people were, I mean, when you look at the stories of the different accommodation centers, you see people that lived, you know, accommodation centers in the middle of nowhere with no transport to get into the local town. Um, One story that I heard that baffled me was, you know, there was a single taxi that would come, uh, sorry, there was a single bus apologies that would come once a day. Um, and, you know, people would fight over spaces to get on the bus, to get into towns, and to do shopping and stuff like that. And so, you know, th- th- there's no consideration of the people that live in there, only the money that can be made off of the system, which which is terrible because, you know, there's a lot of children who are neglected in mm. um, during that time, you know, a-, a lot of basic needs like education um, and, you know, just the the right to be able to do something for yourself are kind of put on the back burner in that sense
0: yeah it's like it's so horrific because like i could just imagine as a child you have to face this horrific system and also like societal barriers that are Mm -hmm. placed in front of you because you have to go through the system and stuff like that um like i want to go back on what you said about the long-term effects um, mm-hmm. Could you like go into more depth about those and like how you deal with those um, mm-hmm. right now? Cause you're an adult now. And obviously there's you, you're it's, it's been a long time since you've um, departed from the system. So mm-hmm.
1: to say. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, when I think of the long-term effects, one that definitely um, hits home a lot is, you mm-hmm. know, my mother's a diabetic and mm-hmm. she struggled with diabetes, not to, to, to the level that she does now, but she did when we were in the accommodation center um, and she started struggling a lot with her eyesight. Mm. Um, and, you know, the doctors were like, you know, you're, you have some renal issues um, that we want to get ahead of. And and the best way to get ahead of those is to go on a low sodium diet. So this was a simple request that was made um, by the hospital to my mother something yeah. that simple that she could do. Um, at the time when we lived in the accommodation center, um, uh, there were no facilities within the caravans to, uh, make your own food. So no, a uh, hub, no cookware or anything. Um, all of our prepared meals, uh, were made by the accommodation center mm-hmm. and we had a canteen where we went to go and collect the food. Um, you know, getting away from the poor quality of the food itself and the lack of consideration for the people eating the food. um, You know, my mother went to ask the chefs if they would be able to make the same food that they made for everybody else. uh, But just on the side with no salt for her, just so that she could, you know, uh, obey the doctor's orders. Um, She was told that she couldn't have this service provided to her. Um, and that she was going to eat all the food that the rest of the residents ate. Um, my mother having no choice, there was no way that she could make food for herself. You know, uh, she got 19 euro uh, a week from social welfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, myself and my brother got uh, 9 euro 80 at the, at the time. Um, a week. A week. You know, she was living off of 30, 30 euros a week. Um for her whole family Yeah She didn't have money To buy herself food To buy a hob To to make food She just didn't And so You know She had to rely on the food That was provided By the accommodation centre um, Now My mother deals with You know Kidney failure oh Something gosh. that At the time You know She could have easily Reversed some of the Issues she was having With her that, kidneys It was such and a that, Simple request That is A so- simple request You know And And it's had long-term effects on her health uh, and and her diabetes. And it's unfortunate because my mother's always been somebody who's been passionate about giving back to society, whether that's through volunteer work, um, activism, but also my mother, you know, has always instilled in me the belief that uh, you should never be a burden on society. Always work for your own, always give, to those around you, right? My mother has never been somebody who wants to live off of social welfare or who wants to receive, um, you know, any sort of disability money or anything along them lines. She was mm-hmm. a hard worker in that sense, um, and so it's unfortunate that because of something so small, because of precautions that could have been taken in order to to make her healthy, she's at a state where she doesn't know if she's going to be able to work for for much longer, considering her health. You know, the fact that she's struggling with her eyesight. And I think there's a lot of fear for her on becoming a burden to society, on having to quit her job and not being able to work because that's something that you know it's a part of it's it's a morality thing nearly. It is. You know? It's so close to her heart to 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 work and to provide and to be a you know a, a, a citizen that that gives into into society, society. exactly. Yeah. Um, and so there's. Um, Long term issues in that sense. Another one, which I'm very thankful didn't affect Mm. my family personally, but, you know, when we were at the accommodation center, um, once you, once you finished um, um, second level education, you couldn't, um, you know, proceed to, to third level education. Um, there was just no way. There weren't any of the grants that are available to students uh, to students living in direct provision. Now there weren't any, you know, like of and that. All that. nothing. Yeah, wow. There, there was nothing, um, and you had to pay international fees if you wanted to to attend university. No way. Um, and so you had a bunch of kids, a bunch of young people who were finishing secondary school who were finishing with amazing grades, mm-hmm. uh, amazing uh, points, and really bright futures ahead, who were basically told, okay, now the roads, you know, the, the, the roads ended here. You can't um, you can't go any further or progress, you know what I mean? Um, also, at the time, uh, if you lived in direct provision, you couldn't work. So these are kids that can't even go to work, you know. So mm-hmm. they're basically saying sit at home and and take do the welfare checks and I remember my mother went to a, a talk in the uh, in our town when um, during a local election um, and there were all these TDs speaking and she stood up and she she said to them you know the issue with the uh, children in direct provision not being able to further their education and not being able to go into the workforce is going to lead to a lot of very bored children um, and usually, what happens with young people when they are bored is they get into things that they shouldn't, right? And my mother, my mother, in a nearly prophetic sense, uh, was able to say, "A lot of these kids are going to form gangs. They are going to become drug dealers. They are going to, you know, become criminals because they're not going to know any different. There's nothing else that is welcoming them in." Schools aren't welcoming them in. The workforce isn't welcoming them in. But you know what will welcome them in? Crime. A life of crime and violence. Period. And it's no surprise that Athlone is the drug capital, considered the drug capital of Ireland. There's no surprise because there was kids in 100 caravans who grew up only being able to to do things like that. And, And, you know, when we look at, you know, we often look at criminals and we think these are bad people, they've come into our country only to cause us pain or whatever it is that that people the narratives people seem to come up with but oftentimes they're not able to um, self reflect self reflect and understand patterns right mm-hmm. understand that if you don't give children opportunities to better themselves they will have nowhere else to go other than you know to, to to a life of crime and, and so those are just simple ways that, that we've been affected long term by direct, the direct provision system
0: and that also would like feed in feed into like the typical stereotypes that mm-hmm. like refugees have to face like you're here yes. to do crime and all that and mm-hmm. it's it's simple as giving them the resources to access education go further with yourself
1: and okay. And Beat someone. that's it. And, you know, personally, um, uh, I hold a personal view of I'm, I've never been the biggest fan of critical race theory. I, I personally I think there's mm. some holes in the theory. Uh, I think there's uh, a lot of con- a lot of things that aren't taken into consideration or stuff that's exacerbated within the theory. But the one thing that I think they definitely get right is looking at um, the way that society has um Made it extremely hard for young for for young Black people specifically, but also people of different races yeah. to to um to you know better themselves to progress to uh, get themselves out of what is you know what uh, the stereotypes that they're mm. you know, that are put on them, um, and we really are in a system that that continues to to make it easier for us to you know downgrade or to keep ourselves in 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 a lower position if you understand what I'm saying also
0: um like this thing like I watched your documentary living in limbo Mm it's very very good and what struck out to me and I something I could relate to is your mom telling you that as a black woman or as a person of color you have to work three times harder because like society has already painted this image of yourself and you have to overcome those barriers and show them that you're something different. You can adapt to whatever society that you're in. And I could totally like 100% um, relate to that and how difficult that could be because you're facing like expectations, very high expectations. And sometimes you can't even fulfill those. Exactly.
1: There's a lot of pressure on young girls of minorities, you know, from from the time that we're born, we are placed under the pressure of um, a culture that our parents grew up in, mm-hmm. culture that we are growing up under, um, and also um, a lot of our history, you know, and the way that people look at us. And so, from the minute we are born, we are put under a lot of pressure in the sense that we need to we need to overperform. Uh, in order to take care of our parents. We need to overperform in order to get over the barriers that society's put in front of us. We need to overperform in every single arena of life, you know, Um, whether those that are just, you know, whether educationally, whether um, in relationships, whatever it might be, we always, there's always a sense of needing to overperform for for ladies of minorities. And something that I speak to my friend Minahal, who I in. Documentary with it a lot of the time is you know she, it, it's something that is uh, extremely prevalent within her culture the feeling of a lot of pressure especially because you know in her story she came from mm-hmm. a country where you know girls can't aren't allowed to be educated and so she felt the pressure of being educated for all the women in her mm. culture, in her um, in her circle that couldn't be educated. And so there's a lot of pressure put on our shoulders, unfortunately, um, which leads to a lot of, you know, a lot of other things and a lot of um, um a lot of, I guess, sad,
0: a lot of sadness mm. in, in our lives, you know what I mean? I that's a hundred percent true. Sometimes I feel like um when I talk about these pressures to other people, especially like white people, like yeah. there's so much that I have to overcome, like in every single aspect of my life. And it's a thing where They're trying to understand, but not really, because it's just like, Joella, why are you complaining about your hair? But I'm like, I'm perceived different when I have different hairstyles. Like if I I have to go to a job interview, my mom would probably say, okay, Joella, let's let's go with the straighter hairstyle. Let's not do the braids. You know, you have to do the best you can to adapt to society, to this westernized standard beauty standards also. Yeah. And it's quite difficult to um, um, put that across. I'm like, so grateful that you brought that up because that's a huge thing that not even minorities talk about at all, mm-hmm. you know.
1: And, and you know, I think there's the added pressure, unfortunately, of the fact that a lot of our culture is enjoyed uh, and yet we seem to be on the bottom of the totem pole yes. culturally, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And I... I personally you know i i have views that i like to approach conversations like this in a way that that um isn't polarizing um and actually starts a discussion because i don't mm-hmm. think it is a white black issue um mm-hmm. you know growing up in ireland you know i can tell you now that probably the most disliked groups were the black people you know Asians and let's say travelers right and the traveler community are white they are Irish you know Uh, and yet they face a lot of their own discrimination Mm -hmm. and so I think it's more about um, you know yes for us there is a a thing of our blackness unfortunately makes us um, less attractive in all in all senses of that word yeah Um, but there's a deeper conversation about um, I think it's. I think it's almost a um, a thing of if you don't fit within my culture or my understanding of what is right and correct and beautiful and whatever it might be, then there is no conversation for you. If yes, you understand I totally understand that. Um, and it's unfortunate that we, you know, like you said, your like like what your mother had to tell you that we have to tell our young black girls that you know your culture is not really acceptable. Mm. Um, when you go into the workforce you can't have your braids you can't have your hair out you can't enjoy your natural skin or your natural body because it doesn't fit into society's standards of beauty or um neatness or whatever it might be you know
0: it's 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 upsetting at the same time because right now we see other like Public figures, if they do it, they are highly praised for it. But it's just like yes. it's something I have been doing; it's basically my lifestyle. But if yeah. I do it, it's wrong. If let's say Kim Kardashian or any other A-list celebrity does it, it's praised upon. It's fashion forward. I'm like, no, it's cultural appropriation. I mean, I
1: often I often laugh with with uh, my best friend who I went to a primary school with. Yeah, and you know. I remember in primary school I used to get made fun of because I had big lips. Right. I was called everything, including Jay-Z. Right. I had Jay-Z. That was the thing back then. And it's so funny now to have um, not the same people because, you know, but, but to have people turn around and say, Oh, wow. Are those your natural lips? And they're so beautiful and whatever it might be because, you know, the standard of beauty, well, is our culture, except that it looks our culture and our phenotype. Yes. But um, because uh, another race has decided that it is now socially acceptable or now the um, the beauty standard of society, um, that that's when it becomes okay, you know? So, yeah,
0: yeah. it's just weird.
1: Anyway, moving <laughs> on from... Beautiful. I think there's a yeah there's a deeper conversation
0: to that yeah know, it, that did. could be like a whole episode in itself Absolutely. and I, I really wanted to like deeply go into that um I would like to talk about your work with UNICEF and all the incredible stuff you guys have di- have done in the past yeah. so would you like to like go down memory lane or a timeline on and speak about all the projects you were a part of
1: Yeah, so my work kind of starts a little bit before UNICEF. Um, Mm -hmm. While I was staying in the Direct Provision Center, uh, my mother being an an activist herself and an advocate for many years of her life, uh, specifically in women's empowerment, um, she always felt it important for me to have a voice, you know? Um, She always told me how even though I was a small girl and I was one out of billions of people, that uh, my opinion still mattered and I still had something to share at the table, something to give, um, and that I should never forget that. And that kind of led me to the idea that, you know, I want people to know my experience, how I'm living every day, and I want people to understand that. And I got into a few projects with the Irish Times, uh, a radio documentary with uh, RTE, um, just, Documenting my life in direct provision, and I mean, my my friend Manal and I were uh, producers of that RTE uh, radio documentary, and we literally carried around these little I recorded <laughs> everywhere, recorded all of our movements and everything, and it was it was wild because we didn't expect it to uh, become anything. Honestly, yeah, we were just having fun recording something, and it was an opportunity that was given to us, and we thought we looked cool doing it. Um, and when it aired, we got a lot of Uh, A lot of praise and positive feedback and a lot of things that we weren't, you know, expecting, um, including, uh, you know, uh, UNICEF reaching out to us uh, to want to work with us. And we were so honored and, I mean... Uh, shocked I remember like oh my gosh you know everyone knows of UNICEF and they want to yeah. reach out they want to work with us and so we were so excited when they did um and that's where it started and I I'm very thankful for everything that you know that UNICEF has has given us and allowed us to do uh, and the platform that they have given mm. our our story has been amazing um and so I'm always thankful f- for them. The the many projects that I've done with them, between you know reports um, presented, you know before like an EU com- uh, EU committee, um, being able um, to attend the the UN um, you know the, the UN General Assembly on um, refugees and migrants. You know how that was
0: was a- that like how was-, was that <laughs> that I I. I was like just sitting here. I was like, wow, you were actually out here doing big things. Like, yeah. whoa. It was honestly
1: reflecting on it. It was a surreal moment. Um, we were so excited to go. We didn't expect to go. We didn't think we were going to be invited until we were. Mm. Uh, so that was great. And, you know, it's 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 it was kind of otherworldly <clears throat> at the time. Um, And we got a platform. I remember the first day that we arrived in New York, we got a platform to speak to a bunch of world leaders. I mean, there were ministers of different countries, presidents of countries, uh, of organizations, all sitting there um, wanting to hear myself and Minaho's story. And it was so, um, it was, I don't know, it was, it was, and it was a time where I truly understood my mother's words on the mm. important voice because I had just opened my voice in an Irish Times newspaper. And it had allowed me the opportunity to speak before ministers and presidents. And that was it's it's. You know, it's humbling in a sense, definitely. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: uh, and um, I'm very thankful for that opportunity. And getting to, you know, sit in a, in a committee with before the Secretary General, at the time it was Ban Ki-moon, uh, and to share my experience as a child migrant, uh, to hear the stories of other ch- uh, child migrants from around the world, Um it was a surreal opportunity, honestly, and I still can't believe that I was a part of that. Uh, it, it was it was very I was very privileged, honestly, to get that opportunity to do that, um, and I'm just glad, you know, the fact that myself, you know, my small voice and my my, my good friend's small small voice, I <laughs> uh, was used to represent child migrants uh, from you know, from Ireland and from other countries was just, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite a, quite an an amazing moment.
0: That is amazing. It just comes to show just, if you have something to say just say it you never know who's listening or who's going to receive it it might change them it might change your life it might open your mind it might change perspective and that's the whole I feel like the whole point of this podcast also and the whole point of your work with um UNICEF it's it's very like inspirational um anyone listening um Natasha and Minahal, her friend, uh, did I say that correct? I yes, you <laughs> did. Everyone's name is wrong. They have this um, documentary on RTE. It's called Living in Limbo. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing. It documents your last year in school, also touches on direct provision, and also touches on the pressures that we as m- minorities face um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: within society. Do you want to talk about living in limbo for like a couple of minutes?
1: Yeah, so uh, uh, Leaving Limbo was, a, 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 well, another amazing opportunity yeah. that we got to have a, we had done a, a radio documentary and so we just thought, why not also conquer, you know, a, a video, a, a, <laughs> a, a film <laughs> recording, we might as well. and <laughs> no But um, when we got to do it, 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 it documented our final year uh, in the Leaving Search, which was definitely a challenging year in both Manahal and I's life, you know, yeah. Um, uh, we were faced with a lot of challenges, but it was also a year where we really had started to reflect on our experiences in direct provision. Mm. The main reason why is because we had never thought we would have been out of the system by that point. Wow. Um, you know, we were thankful in that sense. We were thankful that we weren't in the in in, in any sort of situation where. Um, we would have been in our final year and not been able to go to third-level education. And we were also reflecting on all the changes that had been made to direct provision in the six years since we had left the system.
0: Yeah,
1: Um, And, you know, it was... And being thankful that we had a part to play in that. Mm. Uh, Being thankful that we had managed to change the trajectory. I had a small part in changing the trajectory of all of the other children and young people in direct provision, you know, and, and I had a close friend whom I was doing the leaving cert with who was in direct provision and seeing her have the opportunity to go and pursue her dreams when, you know, that wasn't the story for my brother or yeah. my brother's age group, you know, that was a moment where I, I truly started to understand um, the, the power in the movement, the end uh, direct provision movement, and where it had taken us. And so it was definitely a roller coaster year. Um, but, you know, and also trying to balance other aspects of life. Yeah. But what I love about the documentary so much is it wasn't, um, you know, a gloom and doom documentary
0: now i appreciate that a lot and i'm glad you brought that up because i felt you know glad watching it i felt happy and i was like i'm glad that it's not very because i feel like in media they tend to portray this very dark moody um vibe to everything but i'm like this was light it was easy it was sad but Mm -hmm. at the end very gratifying in a sense which is amazing
1: exactly and I mean you know that's the one thing that I didn't want to do I didn't want it to be another sob story you know because that's not what my life is it's not a sob story it's it's a story of overcoming a lot of things and a story that I know will end you know in a victorious manner you know and I'm very thankful for that and so I didn't want that reflected in the documentary I am you know Oftentimes, uh, a lot of my schoolmates, uh, when they saw the documentary come out, uh, uh, said to me, you know, Natasha, I never knew you lived in that
0: provision. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, you were always the smiling, happy, laughing girl who was loud and boisterous. And, you know, that is not what we expect from someone who's living that sort of a life when they go home. Mm -hmm. And I was able to say to them, because my whole life isn't me being, uh, you know, extremely sad or melancholy I want to have moments of joy and I believe that joy is so, so important in our lives and so I wanted that reflected in the documentary I wanted moments where we were laughing where it was light-hearted uh topics I also wanted to get across the point myself and Minaho wanted to get across the point where that we were just young girls you know yeah. we were girls who were going all the same issues as everyone else, just that on top of that was dealing with our past and direct provision and the work that we were doing uh, to end the system. But, you know, we had issue with our hair and uh, what clothes we were going to wear and were we going out and did we have boyfriends and whatever it was. That was still a part of our experience. And sometimes people forget that, that, you know, as kids, we still deal with, um childish things you know yeah and so i'm very i'm always thankful that that came across in the documentary while also hitting on some uh some truth and some very dark uh, um information we still had those light-hearted joyful moments um and you know of all the things i've ever done in my life um, and all the amazing opportunities I've had to speak before the UN, to speak before uh, a, an EU committee, uh, the people that I've been able to meet, influential people, um, you know, uh, one of the things that I love to boast about is being able to sit at a table and have dinner with a billionaire, you know, and, and like those are opportunities people get all the time, but it's like things that I'm like, wow, I got to do there is nothing that i'm more proud of than um, the moment that my documentary i was able to share the documentary with the important people in my life we yeah. hired out a cinema oh we premiered to a few people that we invited and to see my my mother's friend uh, her daughter who was at 7 at the time or seven, well, sorry 8 or 9 at the time apologies you know, after the documentary aired, she came up to me and she was crying. And, you know, she said, I want to be just like you when I grow up. You know, that moment was like, man, you know, I grew up not having anyone to look up to, not having an inspiration. You know, as black girls, we didn't have many yeah. inspirations growing up. Um you know, I didn't always feel like I, I I fit in to my culture, so I did I couldn't really look up to people within my culture. I couldn't look up to you know a lot of the American artists because I wasn't American, so I I could never relate. But to see somebody who was able to look at my story, see themselves in it, and see a way to get out of it was so humbling. And the most amazing moment I've ever had. Um, and so I, I'm very thankful for this wow. documentary
0: giving me that, that wow. moment. Natasha, yeah. now that was so <laughs> amazing. Like it's bringing tears to my eyes because <laughs> representation is such a massive thing. Because as a, at a young age, it really shapes our mind. Because you're so naive as a child. Obviously, you're going to look at outside influences to see what you could become and i never saw yep. that come into ireland and the fact that mm-hmm. you're instilling that within the younger generation is something they need to see and it's nice mm-hmm. to know especially for them that they're going to grow up and there's people like them and society is able to accept them the way they are that mm-hmm. is so amazing like i i love that so so much I feel like that is a great way to, like, wrap things up, really. Like, this Mm -hmm. was so amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 100, like, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your wonderful story. You're truly an inspiration, not just to me, but to that little seven-year-old and to whoever is listening, honestly. Is there any last shout-out you want to give out or anything, any last words? (laughs)
1: I mean, I feel like you know I could speak forever. Honestly, yeah. this was an amazing thing. Thank you so much, and I'm so glad that there are you know two young ladies who are taking an initiative. You know, doing something um, to share stories, which I think is amazing. Uh, I guess in sense of shouting out, uh, I want to mm-hmm. thank you know the women at UNICEF who helped, who have always helped me, Vivian, mm-hmm. uh, Nikita, and um, Adine. Shout out to them, we love them. Yes. <laughs> amazing <laughs> ladies who honestly I would never have been here um I would I you know wouldn't be here honestly mm. without um, their love for me and Manahal and their honest to God, interest and um, desire yeah. to to see the direct provision system end. Um, So thank you to those women at UNICEF, to the whole staff at UNICEF who have always been uh, amazing and kind um, to us. Um, I also want to thank Minahal. Obviously, you know, she's been my my right hand woman, (laughs) my wing woman, my, you know, my everything for so many years. And she will always be that. And we shared many experiences together. And so I'm very thankful uh, every day for for what she does. And I always believe that anytime that I share our story or I share my story, uh, that I'm not only representing myself, I'm representing her because her package deal, you know, so I want to shout out her, um, you know, and, you know, all the people that I ever did anything with, Uh, between the irish times rte any of the directors i mean i could list a bunch of people but there's way too many yeah everyone and every organization that's ever supported me and Minahal and our story thank you and most importantly to my parents and my brother um i'm very thankful that they helped me get as far as i did
0: yeah that is amazing Oh, I wish I could just say a round of applause for Natasha. <laughs> but we're doing this over Zoom, so I'll relax. But thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, thank you again, Natasha. This was Joella hosting once again. And till next episode, have a lovely day and take care. Bye.